my family, the church we went to just before we planted Open Table Community Church, had a homeless ministry. And we got very involved in that. The very first time um, I visited the church, I went because an employee of mine was begging me to go. Um, and so finally I gave it a shot. And um, I had to walk through this like huge cloud of cigarette smoke um, to get in the front door because a bunch of the homeless guys were kind of congregated right outside the main entrance. And like immediately I was like, this is going to be my kind of church. Like, if no church I'd ever been to would, would have even allowed that, they would have like pushed them off in the back or something. So I was like, this is, I don't know what's going to happen here, but this is awesome. This is my kind of place. Um, okay, because I've always been challenged by Matthew 25 when Jesus was like, you know, um, whenever you do this for someone else, whenever you care for them, whenever you um, find someone who's hungry or thirsty or lonely or naked or sick and you take care of them, you're doing it to me. And I've always been like um, really inspired by this, but I'm also frustrated by it because I don't know a whole lot of people in that situation. Like just in my normal life, I don't bump into a lot of people in that situation. So I was like majorly inspired by this verse, but at the same time, really didn't know how to live it out. Do I just like chisel some time out of my ridiculously busy schedule to go find somebody who's needy? Or do I kind of throw some generic money at a ministry that does that? That didn't feel like the heart of the passage. And so I always struggle with it. And then all of a sudden here I land in this church where they're right there. Like, and it's, it's, it's hard to miss. And so, uh, so I finally got a chance to kind of live out the Matthew 25 thing. Um, I'm with people who fit the bill. And, and so we dove into this homeless ministry and we had an opportunity to learn a ton. We met um, with people who ran like nationwide homeless initiatives um, and we helped to launch new programs. We fed homeless friends in our home. Uh, we went to the homeless camps and, uh, and helped replace tents and sleeping bags where people would get stuff stolen and other gear. We scrambled to find overnight um, accommodations when the weather would get crazy cold. We'd all kind of take up offerings and gather money for cheap hotel rooms for a night just to get people off the streets when it was really, really cold. Um, we drove homeless people to appointments where they could meet with government services and we'd help clean them up so that they would look all right, help find homes for some of them. And, and, uh, and we even took in um, a lady. She came to live with us for about a little over a week um, because the police did a kind of a routine, what they call a roll, where the police would come in and roll a camp, just arrest everybody because um, you can hold somebody for 24 hours without charging them. So they would just arrest everybody to get them locked up. Then they could go through the camp and look for guns or drug paraphernalia and stuff like that. And then once you find it, um, then you can charge them if you want. And if you don't find anything, well, you just let them out and there's no harm done. You can't, you can do that. Uh, and you don't have to have a reason as long as you let them out within 24 hours. It's kind of a weird rule, but pretty regular thing. Well, they rolled the camp and Crystal, this friend of ours who weighed about 85, 90 pounds, is, She'd been homeless for, I think, 11 or 12 years at the time. And, and uh, we had heard that she they didn't take her. She was in the camp all by herself. And it's, you know, not a great place. And so we uh, so we went down to get Crystal. We went down and got her and brought her home with us while we waited for everybody else to um, to uh, to get released. Um, and so uh, uh, this was a, a, a learning experience because... On the way home with Crystal, I stopped at the liquor store to get a bottle of whiskey because Crystal was a really bad alcoholic and I uh, did not want her detoxing in front of my kids. Like that, that scared me more than Crystal drinking. And so, um, and so I knew, you know, she was not going to be able to go a week and that my kids did not need to see 
detox live and up front and personal. So I stopped and got a bottle of whiskey. And being the economic shopper that I am, I got a big bottle. That figuring this will last her. If we have to keep her for two weeks, this will last her for two weeks. I mean, she's like 90 pounds. I got the big, big bottle. She drank it all the first night. And, and I mean, I couldn't. This would have knocked me out five times. Like, I could not believe it. Um, and so, uh, so then my second trip to the liquor store, I got seven little pocket-sized bottles. Like, and I told, I gave her one a day, and I was like, this is all you get today, you know. And, and I'll be honest, as terrible as it sounds, she was much more fun after drinking the big bottle than she was to get along with on a little bottle a day. Um, so it was a major learning experience. It was, it was something we were not at all... Um, prepared for, equipped for, and we learned a lot on the fly. Um, uh, and so, uh, and in dealing with Chris, so it made me wonder, you know, because Matthew 25 is like always in my head when I'm working with this ministry, like, um, you give me food and clothes, and kind of, I don't know if whiskey is, is in that list, or if it, you know, when I needed whiskey, you gave it to me. I don't know, and I don't really know even what it means to give whiskey to Jesus. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it's messy. We, we helped the, the Methodist Church um, with their VBS for the last two days, and their theme was, Loving God is Messy. And I, as I was writing this, I was like, boy, is it? Like, who in the world ever thought when you, when, when you give whiskey to the least of these, you're giving it to me? I don't even know if that verse works. But... Um, but I found myself in that mess. We're actually going to talk about that more in a bit. But we're in week nine of our long summer series, Acts Like a Christian, um, where we're looking at this kind of 2,000-year-old book that chronicles the life of the very first Jesus followers. We're trying to figure out what it means to live resurrection lives in the real world. And a lot like us, um, they had spent their entire lives following this book that they loved and honored and believed uh, the book that they felt had the real and true answers for life um, called the Torah or the Old Testament. Um, but they had also learned very quickly that it takes a great deal of effort and prayer and sometimes debate uh, to figure out exactly how to live out this book in the real world, in your daily lives. So as we, in 2021, try to figure out what it means to be a Christian and to engage this process of advancing the kingdom of God uh, and, and heralding Jesus' rule and reign, um, it just seems to make sense to look at how they did it and, uh, and what situations they ran into and see if we can learn from those. So that's what we're doing this summer. Um, we've talked about how the disciples uh, kind of moved from being mostly passive followers of Jesus, just following him around and, and, and reveling in everything he did, uh, to after he left, having to become participants and, and active movers in this kingdom of God and how the Holy Spirit came and not only filled his people, but did it in a way that left little doubt that things were different now, that something had dramatically changed. Uh, Jeremiah had prophesied it this way. Uh, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with my people Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. 
I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. And there'll be no need for each one to teach his neighbor. Nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and never again remember their sins. This is the only time in the Old Testament that this phrase, new covenant, happens. There's no other prophet that, like, they hint toward it and they talk around it, but Jeremiah is the only one who says, I'm going to come and make a new covenant. Which is kind of powerful, because Jesus in the Passover meal, in his last supper with his disciples, takes this third glass wine. It says, after the meal, he took the cup, and, and in the Jewish Passover, there's very specific places you, you, you toast, and the one that's after the meal is classically called the cup of salvation. The toast that goes with it is we, we bless you, O God, um, the Lord of our salvation. And so they call this the cup of salvation. So Jesus says this cup, not just a cup, but specifically this cup, the cup of salvation, is the new covenant. He pulls this word out that doesn't happen anywhere else in the Bible except in this verse in Jeremiah. He said, this is the new covenant which is made in my blood. And it's this thing that we say every week. And so Jeremiah comes along and says, someday I'm going to make a new covenant. And Jesus comes along later and goes, this is the new covenant in my blood. So, so it's not a coincidence that he pulls those words. He's talking about a specific passage in the old covenant. This is that new covenant. So when the Holy Spirit crashed into the church on the day of Pentecost, so similar to the way he did on Mount Sinai, only on Mount Sinai, Moses was really the only one that, that, that participated and here at Pentecost, everybody kind of receives whatever God is giving. And it's so powerful. There's not only God working in the, the new believers, but through them, like actually coming out of their mouths in this thing called speaking in tongues. Um, and it seems clear that this is the new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about. This thing that's from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so when the Holy Spirit... Um, suddenly is in his people working. Um, uh, they know this is Jeremiah's prophecy. This is that thing where he's making a new covenant where he's, he's putting the stuff in us rather than at us. And everything has kind of changed. And it's good because not long after the Holy Spirit comes, everything gets dicey. And they desperately need the guidance of the Holy Spirit for the rest of the book. Peter and John heal a guy. Um, which leads to the temple leaders making it illegal to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. They kind of change the laws, um, which does not slow down the apostles at all. They immediately go right back to preaching, and when they get arrested the second time, they get beaten. Um, and before you know it, one of the newly hired deacons is killed. Uh, we talked about that last week um, for preaching Jesus. And this scatters the new believers all over the area. They're all forced to run for their lives out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas. Um, this is the first time any believers have left Jerusalem. And now they're kind of going all over. And we talked last week how Luke records, and, and the, those who were scattered preached the gospel everywhere they went. And so this terrible thing that happens leads to this amazing thing, which is the spreading of the gospel. And maybe the craziest part of the book is that Luke spends almost no time dealing with the details of that persecution. He just kind of, uh, well, this is, this is what he says. He says, the great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the region of Judea and Samaria. And without missing a beat, he shifts gears. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news of Jesus wherever they went. He's already on to the next story. Like, 
doesn't really spark at this persecution much. He's like, which turned out to be a good thing. And he's on into the, the next story. So it's kind of a good news, bad news kind of, kind of thing. You know, bad news, everybody got persecuted. Good news is the gospel went out, which is awesome. And this guy named Philip, one of the scattered believers, runs north into Samaria, preaching the good news about Jesus. Um, it's Philip that kind of shines uh, a whole new light on this passage in Jeremiah um, that the church was so convinced that they now understood. They now feel like we get it. We get what it means for this new covenant to be this thing where God puts it inside of us. It's no longer a command we obey. It's a, it's a thing that lives in us that we, that we work to let out. They feel like they now understood this, except um, Philip calls that into question, which is interesting. Let's read the passage. I'm starting in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, if you want to follow along in your own Bible or app, where the words will be on the screen. Um, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria. He told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was a great joy in the city. And a man named Simon had been a sorcerer there uh, for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from least the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time uh, he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went. And he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people in Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for those believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had, been, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on the, these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given to the apostles, when the apostles laid their hands on the people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift to be bought. You, have, you can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps He will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are being held captive to sin. That's intense, right? Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaims, that these terrible things that you've said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. We're not actually going to spend a ton of time on Simon in this story, um, which often is what grabs everybody's attention and makes it really hard to kind of figure out what's going on underneath here. Uh, but I do want to say a couple things about Simon. Um, uh, Simon had grown used to being a big shot, obviously. I mean, uh, he did some he had some sort of magician job, and whatever that was, his popularity reached the point that people were calling him Kanye. Oh, I'm sorry, wait. No, they were calling him they were calling him the Great One. Um, 
<laughs> Sorry. And, uh, but he had been really popular. And now, um, when Simon heard Philip present the gospel, he believed, which is awesome. That's amazing. That's, that's a good story. But when the apostles show up and Simon sees kind of not only the way that they're honored, um, but especially the way that they are able to kind of wield the power of God, um, he offered to pay money for that power. Like, and uh, which, as, as we heard in today's reading, did not make Peter happy at all. Like, that was, that was, uh, was pretty intense. Um, and I don't want to labor this point much because I'm certainly not trying to pick on anyone else. Um, but I personally fear that the spirit or maybe the attitude of Simon is way too prevalent in the church today. The way that um, a lot of pastors and church leaders not only kind of model, um, but also spend a great deal of money on everything from conferences to training and such to imitate celebrity pastors um, feels way too much like Simon to me. Uh, in fact, as much as Peter kind of tears into Simon here and makes him sound like the bad guy, I have compassion on that because that's a great temptation um, to do that exact same thing. I mean, it's subtle, like, but you know, you you watch a mega church and, and it's full of passionate people and the uh, that seem really engaged and, and in love with Jesus, and you see this giant worship team that's producing radio-quality music every single week, and it, it seems like a, this is the power of God working on earth. Look at how amazing this thing is. How easy is it to go, if I give you money, i.e., come to your conference, buy your material, invest in your church growth strategies, uh, will you give me that power too? The power to do that same thing. I mean, that... It's subtle, but I feel like that's what Simon is doing. All he's doing, he's saying, hey, whatever you're doing is works, and I want to pay for that. And I, I feel like the church has bought into that a little bit, which scares me. And, uh, and I'll be honest, even some of the ways, like some ministry training schools tend to do that. They're like really expensive, and kind of what's behind them is if you come here and pay us your money, we'll give you the power to do what we do. And, that, and that's a scary thing to me. Um, it feels a lot like Simon. So I don't want to, I'm not trying to judge anyone else. And if someone popped in your head while I was talking about this, stop it. Stop it. Because that's not right. Um, but I do want to admit that I feel that temptation at times. You, you know, uh, I don't just stubbornly refuse to follow successful church models because I'm an individualist who wants to do it my own way. I'm actually a little bit afraid of that concept of, of of saying, I want that. I want to be like that. Like, that's all Simon does here. And Peter calls it out. He's like, you have jealousy. You have a spirit of jealousy. You're seeing what someone else is doing, and you're saying, I want to be like that. And, and I don't want to do that. I feel like our job is to figure out who God has called open table to be and do the work of saying, what does that look like, and who is that, and what is that supposed to be, and how do we step into that role? And it's not going to look like another church. It's not going to look like anybody else. Um, and the reason I feel like we do that is because of this kind of passage. Um, we don't want to be um, Simon here. This will limit us in some ways. You know, there'll be things that, yeah, if, if we wanted to buy a model and follow this thing, you know, it, it, they, a lot of them work. And, and to go, hey, we're going you know, to seek the Holy Spirit try to figure out what God wants us to be. We'll create some limits. And, but I feel like that's our job is to figure out what God wants us to be. Amen? Simon saw the ministry of the apostles and immediately grew discontent with what God had called him to do in that moment. And, 
and he wanted to uh, to have a ministry like theirs, and to uh, to kind of follow that that lead. And Peter shot that down um, pretty quickly. But that's not really the thing I want to spend a lot of time on. What I really want to spend time on um, that that and it does kind of bear on Simon's story a bit, but is this trip that Peter and John take up into Samaria. Because at this point, we don't really know exactly how long this is after the resurrection, but at this point, they had not left Jerusalem since the resurrection. They they had a home base, and they had not traveled anywhere yet. Everyone else scattered, but it says the apostles didn't scatter. They stayed in Jerusalem. So this is the very first time they kind of leave their home base to go somewhere else. And, And it was into Samaria. So I feel like this journey is a little bit significant. That, that they, they, for the very first time since Jesus left, they leave kind of their home church and go somewhere else. Um, several times this year, I've kind of belabored the, the tension and downright bitter hatred that the, that the Jews had for the Samaritans. And we kind of talk about it all the time. Um, and vice versa, the Samaritans hated the Jews as well. Um, in fact, Esther walked through a bit of that history a couple weeks ago when she taught us. Um, so I'm going to spend a lot of time reteaching that here. Um, but I do, we do have a lot of sermons, if you want to go back, um, uh, that, that deal really deeply with that. We go through the history pretty significantly. But suffice it to say that Jews just truly hated Samaritans. And if you remember Judea, um, which is kind of where Jerusalem was and what in that day was kind of called Israel proper. It's, it's I shouldn't have done that. What was the whole nation of Israel had been taken captive and all that's really left is this bottom piece called Judea. Um, and they had managed to kind of regain Galilee, which is clear up here in the north, but this whole chunk in the middle was Samaria. And so Galilee and Judea are kind of separate, and, but they're really both the same nation, even though they're, they're separate from each other. So, and Jesus was from Galilee, the north part. So every time he goes to Jerusalem, he has to pass through this middle section called Samaria. Um, and some of the when you kind of trace where he's walking while he's talking, some of like his most classic and famous um, teachings happened while he was um, in Samaria, which is which is interesting. Um, and so Jesus actually spent quite a bit of time in that in-between space journeying back and forth, which makes Matthew 10 a little bit confusing. It reads like this. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Um, and so he sends, this is the very first time he sends out his followers to kind of go out and, and minister on, on their own. And he tells them, only don't go to Samaria, don't go to the Gentiles, only the Jews. And of course, this is before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, so a lot, the, the game has changed, before the great uh, commission, when he's like, now you're going to go and make disciples. This is not that. This is like their test run. This is their very first, go out and see how you do. I go out and advance the kingdom, tell people that the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, but you have to know that this is pretty strong in the apostles' memory. This is not that many months before the crucifixion. And so you got to know, you know, when, when they're now following the Great Commission and they're preaching the gospel, some of them still have that memory of Jesus saying only don't go to Samaria and don't go to Gentiles. That's still kind of hanging in there. Even though when he at the beginning of Acts he said you're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. He had said that. 
But I'm sure many of them remembered him saying, don't go to Samaria. Also, especially since that kind of confirms the, the preconceived bitterness they already have towards Samaritans. I'm sure you kind of, when you don't like Samaritans anyway, and Jesus says to you at some point in the story, hey, don't go to the Samaritans, you're like, right on. We're not going to go to the Samaritans. That's, that suits me just fine. You know? um, and so, uh, uh, in fact, this is just to know kind of where the disciples' guts were. On Jesus' final trip through Samaria, when he comes down to Jerusalem to actually die this time, his last trip through, this happens. Um, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. He's got an entourage with him, so you've know, you got you to take out reservations and make space for everybody. Uh, but the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So what's happening here is the Samaritan village doesn't necessarily have any beef with Jesus. They just hate Israel so much that when they find out he's just passing through Jerusalem, they don't want to. They don't want to make space for him, you know. Um, and it's not even necessarily him. It's we don't like anybody going to Jerusalem. So so they won't um, they won't give him accommodations for his entourage. Um, but the thing that cracks me up is this is the disciples' immediate reaction when they say no. They go, when James and John saw this, they, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? <laughs> like, like, they've got some issues that need resolved, you know. The second they're upset, hey, can we burn them? Can we torch the place? Incidentally, I think this is one of the reasons that God does not give his people more power. Because um, I'm afraid if I could, I would smite my children weekly. Like, at least call down fire to burn the toys they won't put away. Like, that's it. The toys are gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but look at the bitterness that the disciples are carrying in this passage. Should we, should we burn the place? Um, and this is after spending three years with Jesus. Like, this is this is toward the end of his ministry time. You know, they've been with him a long time now. And the first time they get a chance, they're ready to, to call down the fire of heaven. Straight to the smiting. But, uh, but let's look back at this morning's passage. Philip, while running from his life, uh, from this persecution that, he recently, that had recently hit Jerusalem and the surrounding towns, lands in Samaria. Uh, this place that not that long ago... Um, had this do not enter sign on it. Um, Jesus saying, don't go there. Uh, and if we read this passage with kind of a mission, like our typical missionary background that most of us have, where we're super excited every time the gospel goes to a new place, you, you might automatically be thrilled, you know, that uh, a new people group is receiving Jesus, and that's awesome. Uh, but remember that it was only a few months ago Jesus was saying, hey, don't go into Samaria. So, um, so, uh, so I, I don't. I know everything has changed in light of the resurrection, but you have to wonder if for the apostles, if it had really changed that much. Um, and so, this line that happens in today's passage, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted the gospel, they sent Peter and John there. You have to read into that probably a little suspicion, or maybe caution is a better word. Like, like you have to when they you don't just send the apostles out. Everywhere they there's they go for a reason, and I think it's to see if this was valid, to see if this was real. What was happening here? I personally think Peter and John left Jerusalem for the first time since the resurrection because they needed proof. They needed to see for themselves if, if what they were hearing was real. And I think uh, 
part of it was because they were struggling with the idea of Samaritans really following Jesus and getting saved. And this is what is, is ironic, is uh, that verse from Jeremiah, that new covenant verse, that verse that, that they were so sure was now happening because the Holy Spirit was living in them. Um, now, uh, this verse that's so important that we quote it every time we take communion. This is the new covenant which is made my blood. That passage actually starts like this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. In Jeremiah's day, the nation was split in two. The northern part was called Israel. The southern part was called Judah. And they both get taken into captivity. But Judah gets set free. Israel doesn't. They just kind of morph into the Samaritans. But that's not in God's eyes. In God's eyes, they're still Israel. That whole thing is still Israel. So what was in Jeremiah's day, Israel and Judah, is in Jesus' day, Israel and Samaria. And so you're like, there's going to come a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with both of them. And at this point, I don't think the disciples would realize that. They're, they're caught up on the new covenant part. They love that part. They love the part of God coming in. The part they haven't realized yet, the part that I think they had overlooked until this, was that God has a plan to save both groups, to reach out to both groups. And this verse that they were, that they were so passionate about, um, it was there all along. God prophesied it all the way back in Jeremiah that he was going to make a new covenant with both groups, Judea and Samaria. And Philip, running from persecution, started making that prophecy come to pass. So the apostles traveled to Samaria to test and verify if the salvation of the Samaritans was valid. And the way that they, that they test the believers is kind of interesting because they don't ask them theological questions. They don't make them recite a bunch of catechisms. They don't put them on the spot and make them raise their hand and answer an altar call. They don't suggest that they repeat a sinner's prayer. You know, the way that the apostles confirm that this new group of people are actually admitted into the people of God is by praying for them and asking God to confirm their conversion the same way he did with the Jewish believers, by sending the Holy Spirit. And, and God did. And we, we aren't told in this passage what way God evidenced the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it was something clear enough that Simon saw it with his own eyes and was like, I want the ability to do that. So when I lay my hands on people, whatever that thing that happened is, that same thing happens. I want that power. Ironically, the next time we see this type of, of what we would call evidence of the Holy Spirit's dramatic arrival was the first time a Gentile gets saved. While Peter is still preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his family. The very first Gentiles who received the, the gospel. In fact, when the Jewish believers, they get mad at Peter. They're like, what are you doing hanging out with Gentiles? And these are Christians. They're like, what are you, you can't preach to those people. And the way that Peter gets out of trouble is he goes, hey man, the Holy Spirit fell on him just like he did us. What am I supposed to do? I can't, am I, am I supposed to fight against God? So this, this coming of the Holy Spirit is specifically noted three times. And, and the first one is the day of Pentecost when he, when he fills the, the Jewish and he evidences himself to the Jewish believers. And then he does it again when the Samaritan believers get saved. Then he does it again when the first Gentile believers get saved. It seems like every time the, the gospel moves into a group that leaves the church going, yeah, but, but them? 
God shows up and says, yes, them. And it gives them an evidence to go, yes, absolutely, them. This is the real deal. You can believe this. And what's most beautiful to me about this is the fact that every time the church runs into a spot where it doesn't know what's happening, they turn to God and God answers. And He gives them a sign. He gives them an evidence. Whatever you want to call it, He finds a way to go, yes, you're all on the right track. You're following me. He answers. And in a way that's undeniable. And as I was contemplating this all week, I was fixated on the newness of it. This idea of new things, novel things. Gospel had never gone there before. This is a brand new movement. No Samaritans have been saved yet. So as soon as they do get saved, the leaders have to go see if it's real. What's happening? This is brand new. We, we don't have a paradigm for this. We have no context for this. They have to go see what's going on. This is after testifying and preaching the word of the Lord's Prayer. This is not much of changed things. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Now that they know something new is happening, they jump on board. Man, let's preach in more villages. Now that the door is open in Samaria, we're not going straight home. We're going to hit several little villages and talk about Jesus. So the apostles, previously headquartered and pretty much landlocked in Jerusalem, are now stopping at villages in, in the enemy's camp to preach the gospel, inviting as many people to join the family as they can. And this is the beginning of a brand new thing. And what's funny is, as, as eye-opening as this moment is, later when the first Gentile gets saved, they're not ready, they're not ready for that. Like, awesome, Samaria's open. Gentiles, no. No Gentiles. At least we're like distant cousins or something with Samaritans. Like we can at least trace that back somewhere. Gentiles? No. <laughs> it's just popping my head. Anybody see the pillar on the roof? Anybody like the pillar on the roof? Like how every daughter gets worse and worse and worse and Tevia, poor Tevia is like, you know, I hate that movie. My wife loves it. And it's like, everybody walks all over the dad. Why is this a fun movie? But it feels like feels like that's the Jews, like the apostles here. They're Tevia. They're like, every time they get okay with something, God pushes them farther. And they're like, no, there is no other hand. Anyway. I don't know where I am now. So I spent all week thinking about new things, which is a little weird in a faith system where we spend every day studying this ancient book and we end every service with me quoting some 3,500-year-old words that God gave Moses to use to bless his people. So it's been all week thinking about the tension between the new and the old. Was it made for an interesting week? And it's a little weird because it feels like in the church today, new, we become enamored with new. New is like, is, is like what we chase after it. And see, because I was talking before about going to conferences, reading books, looking for the latest tips and tricks for church growth, and we add new elements and programs to our to our spaces and buildings, just trying to draw people, and we come up with new outreach methods to get people to come in. And I'm not saying any of that's bad; some of it's necessary. But sometimes we're so busy hunting for the new that we forget who we are, and more importantly, who we've always been. 
as the people of God, all the way back to the book of Acts and before. And what was ironic is as I was considering this tension between the old and the new, and what that says about creativity and tradition and how those blend and, and all those things, the song that we sang this morning, Move Your Heart, spoke to me. And actually... I, want, I was already planning on seeing the song. I was going to have Esther sing it with me. We weren't sure if Esther was going to have to cover children's church. So she wound up not singing with us. But she texted me at some point today and was like, I know why you love that song. Because it, it tangles. It's just like one of your sermons. You tangle everybody all up and then you don't answer it until the very end. Because on the, on the live version of, of the song, he spends the whole song going, um, going, you know, God, what can I do to please you? How do I move you? What, what pleases you? And then in the live verse at the very end, after hunting and seeking, say, God, what is it that moves you? Is it a fragrance that will pour my oil out? Is that life laid down? Then I'll, then I'll make my vows. Is a song I sing? Then here's every melody. Just show me what moves you. And in the live version, while everybody's singing that over and over again, the guy breaks in a moment. because I feel like God is saying, you do. You do. you do. And this is the key to the whole thing and maybe one of the toughest tensions in the entire Christian faith is that God is about people. The whole story is about people. And that seems obvious. It doesn't even seem profound at all. But how much time do we spend on the truth? Like, the concepts, the doctrines, the belief. As if that exists over here as a thing. And, and it's its own thing. And, and our job is, is to, to understand it and to get our, lines, our lives in line with it. That's what it's about. It's all about figuring out the truth and living according to it. Except the entire New Testament seems to be about... Jesus coming to a bunch of people who, who were living their lives that way and going, you guys are missing the point. You're missing the whole thing. Jesus said, I can sum up the whole book that you're, that you're pouring over so diligently to understand every little nook and cranny of it. I can sum it up by saying it's about love. Love God. Love people. I.e., it's about relationship. In fact, one of the best examples of how easy it is to get that backwards happens in, in Mark chapter 2. It says, Now it happened that he went through a grain field on the Sabbath. And as the, his disciples were walking, they picked some grain. And the Pharisees said to them, Look, why do you do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They're just walking and just reach over, grab some grain to chew on. But pulling that grain is illegal. And Jesus says, Have you never read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. 
how he went to the house of God in the days of Avatar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is only lawful for the priest. He also gave some of his men to eat. I'm quoting more than reading here. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's how easy it is to get it backwards. He's like, God made the Sabbath to serve people so that they could rest, so that they could have a minute to breathe. And you've made the Sabbath a thing, and you're keeping men slave to it. Like, like the truth is, that you see how easy that is to get backwards? It's subtle, but man, it's a big difference. We flip that. It's like Jesus says, if you hurt people to protect the Sabbath, haven't you completely missed the point? God gave the Sabbath to bless people. And you're beating up people for the sake of the Sabbath. How can that be what it's about? Because God is about people. We read that verse in, in Luke 9 when the disciples ask permission to call down fire on the Samaritans. Here's how Jesus answers that. But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He's like, holy smokes, could you have missed the point anymore? God is about people. John, one of the apostles who traveled to Samaria to confirm that these believers really did accept Jesus, summed up the entire Christian life this simply. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. God showed us how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us so that much, we surely ought to love one another. None of us have seen God. If we love each other, God loves, lives in us. And His love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us His Holy Spirit as proof that we live in Him and He in us. Someday we're going to break down that whole passage because, man, is there some rich stuff there. We don't have time today. John would have had a hard time with us dividing the church into 6,000 different denominations just because we disagree with a particular little definition on what is the truth. What I love about this morning's passage in Acts is that they had 1,500 years of animosity with these people. If you go all the way back to the background when the very first tensions show up between North and South Israel, 1,500 years of tradition, bitterness. Add to that the fact that this movement of the gospel into Samaria was neither planned nor really expected. And the apostles are faced with this completely new and novel thing. They're faced with something that hadn't happened before, and they don't revert back to tradition. Nor do they get caught up in this the exciting new potential what they do is they go straight to the people. They focus on the people. As soon as they show up, they, it says they, so they prayed for the people. 
before they had a big conference, before they had a big... They went straight to people. They were basically like, tell me your story. What is happening? Let me pray for you. As soon as they get there, they pray for people, real people. And if people are getting connected to God, they don't, they don't look back. They don't go home and go, we're going to have a conference, we'll talk to you and see if this is allowed. No, they deal with people. And if people are loving Jesus and people are getting saved and people are, 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 are on board, that's all they need. Because it's about people. So how do we respond to this? I opened this uh, message morning talking about the homeless ministry we were part of. And I started in that ministry because I love Matthew 25. I wanted to obey the truth. Obey the truth. Truth said I should love the less fortunate. The truth is important. And these people are less fortunate. Simple math. And to be honest, I, I, I was doing the right thing, but my heart was like far from the heart of this passage. I had, I, like, I had no trouble judging these people that I'm not with. Like, dude, try a little. Like, come on. Like, you're not helping yourself out at all. Like, surely you can put a little effort, you know. So I'm, I'm helping them, serving them, but in my head, I'm judging them. There's no doubt. I was judging them. And then one day, Greg told me his story. And, and Greg had a house and a boat and a motorcycle and a truck. Worked construction like I did. We had a lot in common. And he was at a party, drank too much, drove home drunk and hit a family. And he watched a... He watched a 12-year-old girl's head bounce off his windshield and she died on the pavement behind him. And he said, I haven't been sober a day since, except for the time I spent in prison. And for the first time ever, Greg was a human being to me, not a homeless guy. Because I could make that mistake. I could be texting on my phone and hit somebody. And it would be my fault. And I would be responsible and I should bear the consequences. But if I saw what Greg saw, I don't know that I would want to be sober ever again. That day, Greg was no longer just a mess that needed to be cleaned up. He was another human. Just like me. Who could make a mistake just like me. When I heard Greg's story, I saw myself in that. And most of all, I saw the way his story must break the heart of Jesus. So much life and potential wasted in a stupid mistake. A terrible mistake. I can no longer imagine Jesus sitting in heaven, shaking his head like I was, going, Greg, come on, man, get it together. Try a little bit. And, of course, while he's frowning at Greg, he's smiling at me for doing my part in Matthew 25. Not anymore. Matthew 25 had changed on me. Changed out from under me. I suddenly wasn't obeying the truth. In fact, that was the farthest thing from my mind. I was spending time with a, a human being. A human that was intimately attached to the heart of Jesus. One of the themes of the book of Acts 
is that every time there's a conflict, the church opts to love people. Esther told us about hiring the first church staff. And it wasn't something they did like as a church growth program. We need staff if we're going to grow. There was a conflict. There was, a, there, was a, there was issues in the church. There was a problem. And the apostles someone who's messed up, you don't really care about the Bible or the truth of Scripture. You're soft on sin or you don't value biblical principles. And maybe that's true. I, I don't know. I'm sure some people do that. But I know in my life I've done both. I've memorized doctrinal truth statements and I've debated their validity and I've stunned or at least held at arm's length those who don't agree with me. And honestly, that's pretty easy. It's a pretty easy way to live. It doesn't really take much from me. Oh, that's right. It sounded like that was coming from the music. It would be... It does not take much from me to live that life. It's pretty safe and clean to hide behind my theological belief and only really love and fellowship with those who do. That's a fair 
fairly easy life. But I've also tried to love. And love is hard. Love is way hard. Loving those with whom I disagree is, is hard. Loving those who don't vote the way I do is way hard. Loving those who do things that I would never do is next to impossible. And loving those who who don't do things that I do and don't even think about is maybe even harder than that. Love is is hard. Adhering to a biblical standard and drawing a line in the sand that defines my team from the enemy's team is something I'm good at. And I I don't need much help to do that. I can decide what I believe. I can draw a line in the sand and everybody that's on that side of the line, I can can shine. That's, That's, I don't need any help to do that. I can do that in my own but loving is something I, I need help with. I need the Holy Spirit. When I set out to love, I find myself calling out to love all the time. God, you've got to help me. I want to punch you so bad. You've got to help me. The kind of Christian life that requires the Holy Spirit is a life of when I read the story's passage and I think of it in terms of a big movement in the book of Acts, I know theologically how the church has just turned a new corner. They've now officially launched into Samaria, and the apostles traveled there to confirm these new believers, and, and it makes it a significant chapter. A big thing has just happened. But when I read this passage and I imagine a lost and homeless and hopeless Samaritan who's lonely overburdened and feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders and mostly just looking for a reason to go on. The picture of that guy dragging himself into the market one day when he hears a stranger named Philip talking to this small group of people. Philip's talking about the the difference that Jesus has made in his life. And the Samaritan hears about how Jesus' burden is light and his yoke is easy. And that Samaritan's <laughs> eyes well up with tears because he so desperately wants to experience what Philip is talking about. And the Samaritan believes and is gladly baptized and they begin to experience real community with, with people who are believing too and he hears that the big shot apostles are coming to see if everything is legit. And he starts to fear and he feels noticed that it might all be a cruel trick. And when, I, when I imagine a real person rather than a Samaritan, I see this passage totally different. This is the church laying down 1,500 years of bitterness to show love to real people. of that much emotion and that much change and that much sacrifice and maybe even that much internal conflict within Peter as the Simon guy goes, hey, can I buy the ability to do that? You can imagine how Peter losing his cool. So this is an emotional trip for him. He just welcomed a bunch of Samaritans into the family of God. So the way that I would love to respond to this 
think of two things. First, commit to doing the hard work of loving. And it, it will be hard. It'll take a lot from you. But it's worth it. When someone upsets you, when I upset you, don't lie. Try, try love. The alternative is easy. That's, that's the easy part. But loving will, will not only require a, a, a lot of you, it will be hard. You'll find yourself crying out to God for strength and help, and that is not a bad place to be. The second way that I would love for you to respond to this message is not just see yourself as Peter and John, willing to love even when it's hard, but to see yourself as the Samaritan, who is so valuable that God would change everything to come and rescue you. Jesus did mean something, and you still 